Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 6th of June. We're currently ranked number eight on Apple Podcasts among all finance and investment podcasts in Hong Kong. So thank you very much for listening to Money Talk. You can also find us on Google Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the U.S. securities market watchdog has sued Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, accusing it of engaging in a web of deception and improperly using customer funds. In the 13 civil charges filed on Monday, the SEC said Binance and founder Zhang Pengzhou had shown blatant disregard of the federal securities laws and the investor and market protections these laws provide in order to enrich themselves. Binance said it would defend the platform vigorously. China's services sector notched a fifth month of expansion in May, according to a closely watched private survey. The Kaishin China General Services PMI increased to 57.1 in May from 56.4 in the previous month. It was the second fastest growth since November 2020, offering a contrast to the faltering manufacturing sector. Activity in the U.S. services sector unexpectedly slowed in May as businesses feared an economic slowdown. The ISM services PMI fell to 50.3 in May from 51.9 in April, the fifth consecutive month of expansion in the services sector, but the slowest pace in the current sequence. And Apple has unveiled a much-anticipated augmented reality headset called Apple Vision Pro in its first major hardware launch since Steve Jobs unveiled the iPad in 2010. The headset will cost $3,499 and be available from early next year in the US. Apple CEO Tim Cook said the new headset seamlessly blends the real world and the virtual world. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft, Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. The S&P 500 rose in early Wall Street trading, with the gains pushing it more than 20% higher from its two-year October low and putting the index in bull market territory. But the rally fizzled out as the day wore on, leaving the S&P 500 0.2% lower at 4,274 by the end of the day. The Dow dropped 200 points, or 0.6%, to end at 33,563. The Nasdaq Composite dipped 0.1% to close at 13,229. Shares of Apple hit a new all-time high earlier in the session, before retreating to close 0.8% lower. A surprise fall in the ISM services PMI and a drop in factory orders sent US bond yields 10 to 14 basis points lower from their intraday highs. The two-year Treasury yield broke below 4.5%. It ended the day three basis points down at 4.47%, having traded at 4.57% earlier in the session. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index saw a gain of 159 points, that's 0.8%, to end at 19,108 on Monday, extending its rally from the 4% gain recorded in Friday's session, which was the biggest advance in three months. The rally came in hopes that Beijing will unveil stimulus measures to prop up an economic recovery. The tech index rose 0.4%, 
The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index fell 0.9% as markets corrected the rally from Friday, which occurred on speculation that Chinese policymakers will roll out further stimulus to support the real estate sector. Mainland China markets barely moved, with the Shanghai Composite under 0.1% higher at 3,232. The Economic Daily and other state-run newspapers published articles talking up onshore stocks and the country's growth prospects after global fund managers sold 1.7 billion US dollars of yuan-denominated stocks in May. And oil surged out of the gate in Asian trading Monday morning, up more than 3% at one stage. But by the end of the New York session, it had surrendered most of those gains to leave it up 0.8% at $76.71 a barrel. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Tuesday guests. And every Tuesday morning, we find Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And also with us is Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Welcome, Nick. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., we have our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Great to hear from you again, Barry. Good morning, Peter. The influential group of oil-producing nations known as OPEC Plus made no changes to its planned oil production cuts for this year at its meeting in Vienna on Sunday. But Saudi Arabia then announced further voluntary declines and the existing cuts are also going to be extended until the end of 2024. Saudi Arabia's energy ministry said Riyadh will implement an additional voluntary one-month, one million barrel per day cut starting this July. And that's going to bring the kingdom's total cuts to one and a half million barrels per day over the period. Saudi's energy minister said they're not targeting prices and that the extra voluntary cut is a precautionary measure. And they will review the extra voluntary cuts every month to see if they should be extended uh, beyond July. Stuart, um, OPEC's been trying to get oil prices up for a, for a while now. But, but how significant is OPEC these days as a, as a price setter? Well, it is still significant. It still represents a, a large proportion of the uh, availability of oil around the world. And given the, uh, um, the the position with Russia following the Russia-Ukraine war, um, OPEC has resumed an element of importance with the um, with with the distribution of oil, the setting of prices, and and the volumes. I mean, clearly Saudi Arabia is the largest producer. And as the chairman of OPEC and as the leader of OPEC has the most influence here. And um, I think the idea has been that because uh, oil prices have fallen uh, to around $70 a barrel from $90 a barrel, that uh, they want to see prices go up. But uh, they're not going to say exactly that. What they want to, what they're saying publicly is they want to see some stability in the market, mm-hmm. which is fair enough. Um, that's probably what everybody wants to see and, and to know what the price will be in the next six or 12 months. Um, and that's, that's clearly what's going to happen here. Um, Saudi Arabia has got a lot of uh, very expensive projects going on within the country, so it needs, uh, it needs money to pay for them. Um, and not least to pay for the footballers, it seems to be bagging from the um, from, from the Premiership in the UK and from uh, various other European uh, leading football 
leagues trying to make up their own football leagues. So, <laughs> you know, they need the money. That's where the money's <laughs> going, is it? <laughs> from all their, from all their the oil. <laughs> At least you can see there's a tangible... Um, viewpoint if you need to see it i'm glad you brought that up nick you're our trade expert so i think you and me we both believe in free trade don't we so do you really like cartels like opec are, are they really relevant or should they be relevant even <laughs> uh well i figure i mean whether i like them or not doesn't have too much bearing on how they actually perform and what that means for the market um i think yeah from a classical perspective um there's some distortions here uh but they are a very important price setting force. I think. I think the really interesting dynamic that we're trying to look at, um, in addition to the things that you know, Stuart was mentioning, uh, is how OPEC is navigating amid the uh, current kind of sanctions regime on Russia, um, and how Russian production and the purchasing of Russian, uh, you know, oil is frustrating uh, OPEC's mandates uh, and what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think particularly um, the shipments that we're seeing from Russia to India and to China um, and how those shipments are kind of you know, circumnavigating those sanctions and making their way into Western markets anyway. That's one of the really interesting dynamics here when it comes to um, what's happening with the price dynamics uh, as well as what's happening with sanctions evasion more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so, Russia's selling oil more yeah, than $20, I mean, isn't it, below the price now on, on world markets. That's presumably what's blowing apart the OPEC strategy. Yeah, um, and I think this is going to be something which is going to add a lot of pressure to to the cartel um, for, you know, not just this year, but as long as these sanctions are in place, which is a wider discussion around the war. Um, I think, you know, in general, um, we have a relatively sedate outlook for the global oil market. We're expecting it to fall back into deficit by mid-year, um, which you know reflects a number of different supply and demand dynamics tied to the economic slowdown that we're seeing in some major markets, China's reopening. So a bunch of different kind of counteracting factors here. Um, but it's an interesting time for sure. Barry, Barry, what do you make of this? I mean, it's not really working, is it, OPEC strategy? It's been trying to get oil prices up uh, for a while now, but it, it doesn't seem to be able to. Why not? Well, I, I can't really answer that. I think Nick and uh, Stuart are a better place than I. I will say this. If I were the United States, I would be paying a lot of attention to the actions of Saudi Arabia. Uh, They are, when President Xi was there, they are now apparently selling some oil to China for renminbi. Uh, They have made it clear they'd like to join the BRICS grouping of nations. That's Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, This is a country that was a staunch United States ally. And I think that they are upset, to say the least about the way they were treated when President Biden was visiting Riyadh and uh, this whole problem of the slain journalist in Turkey, which the Americans had fingered the Saudi leadership for that atrocity. So I think that we're seeing a shift in Saudi. And I think when the Saudis say they're going to cut production by a million barrels a day, that means a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are the biggest exporter within OPEC or OPEC+. Plus. So... I, I, I don't think the oil market is collapsing, Peter. You didn't say that. But at the same time, I don't think they're failing either. Mm. But presumably the, the problem for OPEC is that it, it can influence supply. The problem is it can't really influence demand. And, that, and that's the other side of the equation that's leading to these low oil prices, particularly concerned that consumption is slowing in China, that the Chinese economy um, is slowing, and therefore there's going to be less demand. This is where OPEC is running into problems, isn't it? 
Well, I suppose uh, it is. But at the same time, I, I just don't see... I think prices are going to rise. I, I mean, Nick is the expert on this. But, uh, you know, if the Saudis are cutting production and the Russians are uh, avoiding sanctions and the global economy is not really going gangbusters, uh, that's a pretty interesting mix. I, I, mm. I would be very surprised if prices go any lower, and I would expect they could be good for another $10 rise. Mm. Yeah, and the, the summer period, um, particularly for China and India, is where uh, higher levels of energy are getting used, often because of the requirement to produce aircon everywhere these days. Uh, so I think that uh, prices will be stable. I think that's one of the major issues. To what extent they will rise is always going to be limited. But, but as has been pointed out, Russia is selling oil to China and India um, and has replaced OPEC in some instances. So OPEC should be being a little bit more cautious than probably it is at the moment as to what its future prospects are to sell to, mm. to these places. Nick, what, what do you make of, uh, of India? India's imports of Russian crude are at a record high. Um, it now imports more oil from Russia than it does from Iraq, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and the US um, combined. So it, it's left OPEC's share of imports to India, the, the lowest in 22 years. This presumably is a huge um, economic uh, boon to, uh, to India, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think I mean the dynamics that we're seeing with India and with China, um, in in some ways, make a lot of sense. Um, both of those countries have been very reticent to, for example, join a lot of the global sanctions regime on Russia or to uh, add measures of their own, or even join the condemnation of that country's actions in Ukraine. Um, and I think when this, when we look at this and we try and apply it to their economic strategies. Um, they are essentially trying to somewhat play both sides um, and take advantage of um, particularly in pricing things that might work in their favor. Um, I think for India, for example, um, it's a very easy argument for policymakers there to say, hey, I mean, these oil, this oil supply isn't available to our Western counterparts, but it's available to us at a pretty nice discount. So why not? Why don't we purchase it? And this is always going to be the big question of getting third countries on board um, with restrictive trade measures and um, sanctions and other types of um, trade, uh, you know, blocking impositions, uh, policies. Um, so, I mean, in, in one sense, um, yes, uh, it makes a lot of sense um, that this is happening. Um, and when we do talk about um, kind of the distortions of the cartel and the global you know, kind of economic landscape. Um, this is one of the things that, you know, a cartel can't really address properly um, because, mm -hmm. as was mentioned, they can control supply, but they can't necessarily control demand. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike with uh, China, it's going to be very difficult for Russia to build a pipeline from Russia to India just because of the geographic complexity. Uh, so a lot of the exports will be going by shipping, and uh, that's going to be a little boost to the shipping industry, although it will be mainly the Russian and the Indian shipping industry. But I, I would expect to see, the, I mean, we've been hearing a bit of talk about a, an oil pipeline going from Russia to China. And I suspect that that's going to be something that we will see um, come to reality in the next five years or so. 
Barry, the, the US seems to be turning a blind eye, doesn't it, to, to India's sort of massive oil purchases, which are almost single-handedly helping um, the, the, the Russian economy. But I presume that's the reality of politics to, today. The US also sees India um, as, a, as a vital ally um, in, in Asia as well. Yeah, I think the Americans are in a, in a tough spot vis-a-vis India, vis-a-vis China. I mean, this quad grouping of uh, India, Japan, Australia, United States is interesting. Um, you know, the uh, Indian prime minister is going to come to Washington for a state visit. But as uh, Nick said, uh, the Indians have not condemned the Russians. They're buying all that Russian oil uh, at a discounted price. And yet the Americans are saying we've got a good relationship with India. Well, good luck to you. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Mm. Well, let's stick with uh, trade. China criticised Monday European Union trade measures aimed at Beijing, claiming they would have serious ramifications for the world trading system. At a WTO meeting in Geneva, China's ambassador, Li Chenggang, condemned a raft of EU policies which are intended to address Europe's long-standing trade grievances with China. He criticised a Foreign Subsidies Act, investment screening and a critical minerals law, which he said were unjustified and discriminatory. The European Chips Act was also criticised as a front for expanding export control measures and hiking subsidies. Now, none of these measures mention China directly, um, but EU officials do privately admit that they have been um, designed to address Beijing's trade policies uh, that it thinks WTO rules um, are ill-equipped to handle. Um, so, Nick, there's always a lot of focus on US-China, but of course, EU-China relations, they seem to be in a, in a bit of a freeze as well at the moment, don't they? Yeah, and I think the EU-China story has actually been really fascinating to track um, since, you know, February 2022, um, because that's when we really started to see a significant downturn um, in the bilateral relationship. I think things were very much strained between China and the EU after tit-for-tat sanctions were announced in regards to Xinjiang, um, the developments in Hong Kong, in terms of Taiwan. Um, but really, it was over the last year where we saw this relationship really start to kind of take a nosedive. Um, and I think a lot of that represents um, miscalculation diplomatically by China, um, given that I think from the conversations that we've had, there were a lot of officials in China who really saw the Europeans as falling in with the Americans because of American influence. Um, a lot of people I talked to essentially thought that, to use their terms, uh, the Europeans were running dogs of the Americans, um, which is why they were <laughs> siding, siding with them, siding with the Americans, I mean, um, after Russia's invasion. The thing I want to emphasize here is that there was not this acknowledgement that the Europeans, you know, have their own interests, their own autonomous interests, and saw Russia, or see Russia in many ways, um, as an existential threat. Um, and so this has kind of really darkened the entire relationship. I think when it comes to trade, a lot of the allegations that we're seeing here are pretty interesting. Um, for example, um, you know, Chinese criticisms of um, European subsidies uh, under the CHIPS Act to its semiconductor makers kind of tends to ignore the fact that China is doing the same thing in terms of its own industrial policy on building semiconductor supply chain resilience. Um, and that's a wider discussion around whether these policies should exist you know, at all, um, and what this means for the free market. But um, a lot of these criticisms really seem to, I would imagine purposely, um, not take into account um, the industrial policy that China has been engaging over the, much of the past decade. Um, hmm. So I think a lot of European officials are going to 
struggle to stomach this and struggle to digest this in, in good faith, uh, given that, again, these policy discussions that are being had right now in Europe are very much in response to the long-standing measures uh, that we've seen in China for, for years and years. This is presumably... Europe, Sorry, Stuart, carry on. I was just going to say, Europe doesn't have a great uh, record when it comes to um, setting down these sort of limited uh, trade policies. After all, that um, was one of the major reasons why the UK uh, created Brexit and left the EU and uh, has found the wrath of the EU since they left um, to be quite difficult to handle. Um, so the e EU has does have this record of uh, using trade and trade policies to try to get its own way and, um, and, and often uh, creating a lot of inconvenience for other partners that it might want to or that, that might want to work with the EU. Barry, this is presumably the de-risking strategy in, in operation here, isn't it? That in, in effect is, is really invented by Ursula von der Leyen. She was the one who came up with that term, didn't she? De-risking oh, yes. as opposed to decoupling. Possibly, yeah, possibly. Barry? Well, you know, look, whether, no matter what it's called, isn't it interesting that Apple is going to start making iPhones in India? I thought that was going to be a long way off and that they would just have retail outlets there because people would, you know, have enough money to buy a high-end phone. But now they, they've, they've said in the last couple of weeks that they're actually going to have a plant to assemble iPhones in India in about two or three years. But, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot going on. And it is interesting. We're seeing a shifting of uh, uh, players here and uh, the priorities are shifting. Let us not forget either when we talk about the European Union, trade is the one area where there is a common EU policy. I mean, the EU Trade Commissioner is negotiating for all, what is it, 29 countries now? But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I am also aware that when it is said that when Mr. Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor for President Biden, left the the G7 meeting in Hiroshima a couple of weeks ago, that he was high-fiving on the airplane because the Americans got everything they wanted. In other words, hammer Russia, hammer China. And the Europeans went along. Mm. Nick, give, give, can you give us a sense of what impact all these restrictions that we're hearing about from the EU, from the US on the semiconductor sector are having on global trade? Because despite all these restrictions, we keep coming up with figures or keep seeing figures that show that trade between the US and China is at record levels. So is it impacting global trade or, or not? Yeah, well, I mean, um, that's, a, that's a tough question uh, for three main reasons. The first one is that you know, the U.S. and China are still structurally very intertwined in terms of their economies. Um, so I don't think we should really expect a quick um, unwinding of those trade links. Uh, we are seeing somewhat of unwinding in certain industries and certain uh, sectors, particularly for you know, de-risking purposes or around policies. But um, I mean, the two largest economies in the world are definitely still going to have a strong relationship with each other. So that's, that's the first thing. Uh, and these policies are not going to change that overnight. The second thing is that um, with semiconductors and with the global uh, chip story, we remember, you know, up until late last year, we su were suffering from um, a, a really strong shortage in chips um, with really, really high demand, uh, given the global electronics boom that was happening during the pandemic. Um, 
those dynamics have really just started to fade since the fourth quarter or so of, of last year. Um, and so what's happening with these export controls and their effect on global trade flows has been distorted by the fact that global electronics demand has really softened. And we see that with the export data coming out of Taiwan, South Korea, Vietnam, even China. Um, and so it's hard to isolate kind of those variables. But what I'd say is that, you know, these measures are coming at a time uh, when we're already seeing kind of a, a downturn in that cycle. So again, uh, it makes things complicated. But the third and last thing I'll say, which hopefully gives a bit more visibility, um, is that yes, these measures are very, very impactful. Chips go into everything. Um, and if it was just the US that was coming out with these measures, um, China would have options to switch to, you know, you know, other um, markets. And the chip splashing is very, very complicated. You have design, which occurs in the US, you have advanced um, equipment manufacturing coming out of the Netherlands, uh, you have various chemicals that, you know, come from Japan, you go into precision manufacturing in Taiwan. Um, I mentioned all of that because the US has been really strong in trying to forge a consensus between all of these different markets um, into adopting or their, their own versions of export controls. And that's really what's, what's necessary here. Um, from that perspective, we can see that China's very worried um, because if there is kind of a unified approach to these export controls across multiple markets, it really does carry some significant supply chain considerations. And we are already starting to see that in areas of Chinese industrial policy. I think one of the things that China is very concerned about is that, you know, last week we saw meetings between the U.S. and the EU in the Trade and Technology Council, um, where they talked about further coordination across sanctions and technology controls and these export restrictions. I think for policymakers in Beijing, that is not what they want to see. They are very, very concerned about this tighter coordination. Um, and this is going to be kind of a dominant theme over the next couple of years as we start to see closer alignment between the U.S. and its you know, key security and economic partners when it comes to restrictions um, on technology in regards to China. Let me ask you about a bit of economic data that we've had out yesterday. First from China, the services sector notched a fifth month of expansion in May. According to the Kaishin China General Services Survey, the PMI increased to 57.1 from 56.4 in the previous month. It's the second fastest growth since November 2020, and it offers a contrast to the, the faltering manufacturing sector. Stuart, um, People have been worried about consumption on the mainland, but this is where it is, isn't it? The, the consumption is occurring in the services sector. In, indeed, and, and I think part of this is because of the uh, emergence after lockdown from COVID and uh, people are getting out and about and doing things that they've been thinking about for, for quite a while. So, uh, yes, um, I was at a, an event yesterday where I was hearing from uh, people involved in the banking community uh, in particular, uh, um, how there are now apparently queues at banks in Hong Kong of mainlanders who want to open bank accounts here. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've, we've had 10 million visitors since the beginning of the year mm. in China. So, I mean, this is a, a reflection of the way in which things are changing. And, and, and this is inevitably going to be a, a boost to the Hong Kong economy at some point. Mm. I mean, this is where um, China consumption, um, Barry, this is going to be important for the U.S. economy as well, isn't it? And the, and the global um, economy It's important that consumption holds up in China because exports are, uh, are faltering out of, um, out of China. Um, the manufacturing sector is faltering as well. Well, that may be. But uh, again, I, I think it was Nick who said this. The United States and China are absolutely intertwined. And even the uh, Biden administration, I think, would uh, concede that point. But uh, we'll see. 
Mm. Nick, we've got some trade data coming out of China this week, haven't we, um, on, on the export and, and import uh, fronts. Pe- people seem to be talking about the base effect that sort of has benefited exports a little bit in, in the beginning of the year. That's going to really run out now. So what, what, what should we be looking for from this data? Yeah, uh, I think when you mentioned base effects, this is a bit of a technical term, but it's really critical for any data coming over the second quarter. And that's primarily because around this time last year is when we saw those really strict lockdowns in Shanghai and other parts of the Yangtze River Delta. I think by early June, those lockdowns had started to be lifted. But the base effect means that last year, economic activity was so weak um, that any type of economic activity this year is going to have a distortedly high kind of performance level. So what that means is we need to be looking at the month-on-month growth rather than the year-on-year growth. Excuse me. For trade, the main thing that we're looking at, um, I guess, is two things. One, how resilient that export story is. Um, We've been seeing flashing signs of softening global demand. So any kind of sequential slowdown in exports is going to affirm that. But two, and this ties to what we were just talking about with with Barry and Stuart, um, with the import story in China, um, this is really the idea of, how much demand China itself as a market is able to provide to the global economy. And what we've seen over the past couple of months is that imports have been really, really weak. Um, Even as the economy has opened, imports have not really matched that, say, that recovery in domestic demand, um, which has really been concentrated, again, in services and within China's borders. Um, And so if imports continue to stay soft, even with that base effect, that's really going to showcase that China's reopening hasn't brought as much of a lift to the global economy that people, I think, might have expected. And I think earlier this year, people were very bullish about the economy kind of lifting all boats. Um, and those expectations have kind of receded a bit um, in, in over the recent quarter, really. Um, and so that's what I'm looking at. Um, it's the import story for China rather than the export story. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, Nick, I would, I would argue there that uh, the import uh, of goods... Um, by China is actually reflecting the same view that is being provided by the manufacturing sector in China insofar as people are not buying um, goods as much as they are buying services. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that really showcases the uh, the nature of China's economic recovery. So I think that's, I, I yeah. agree with that too. The other thing that um, we find interesting um is the idea of import substitution. Um, yeah. So this has been a big story for, say, Japanese automakers who are now struggling with Chinese domestic auto marks who mm. are very successful in, in selling to Chinese consumers, whereas maybe it would have been Toyota or Honda who, who would have been more successful in the past. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's very much the nature of the recovery in China, which is the driving force behind this. Yeah, uh, and the consequence of that... Um, as I said, I was at this conference or event yesterday, and, and the consequence is that the financial services sector is certainly seeing quite a big boom now as uh, both insurance and banking um, rise, although most of this is being done as online and um, automated rather than in person. Barry, can I get your thoughts on some of the US data? First of all, the jobs data we had on Friday, absolutely astonishing numbers here we're seeing, aren't we? 339,000 new jobs created last month, one and a half million new jobs added uh, since the beginning of 2023. There just seems to be no stopping uh, the, the economy on the jobs front. Well, there's still a lot of money out there. And the US economy is indeed, as you suggest, doing better than had been expected. I mean, that number was double 
what the markets had expected. That's 22 consecutive months of job growth in the state. So, yeah, I think so far the Federal Reserve is threading the needle, you know, raising interest rates and at the same time not killing the economy. But there's no sign of a recession, is there? Well, the, people have been talking for a while now about maybe a recession coming in the second half of the year. Um, the data doesn't seem to be suggesting that at the moment. That's correct. But Jay Powell wants the economy to slow down. He'll probably get that. You know, there's nothing like a higher interest rate to restrain borrowing. So <laughs> mm. we shall see. But so far, not yet. But then uh, then you get more data today. The, the ISM services sector unexpectedly slows down. So we're sort of getting conflicting signals as well, aren't we, um, at the moment? There it is a clear cut. Signals. But I would say that uh, the real data that has driven the market um, on Friday and even into most of Monday was this agreement on the debt ceiling in the United States Congress. That crisis has been removed. And uh, then you add some of the, that uh, jobs data. So, yeah, things look better than had been anticipated by almost anyone, including Stewart's favorite, the International Monetary Fund. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you want to mention these things, Barry, I think we have to also be a little bit concerned about whether or not there will be a, a yet another increase in Fed rates coming up in the next month. Um, the market was of the view that 25 basis points might occur, but most recently it seems that many people are now of the view that no increase will occur. So um, I think this, this is going to be the challenge that the Fed faces because, frankly, it, it still needs to keep a, a very tight control on interest rates and, and an increase will probably have um, uh, a, a calming effect on inflation, which uh, is beginning to rise in the United States. Nick, final word to you on, on this. It, it, the, the Fed is changing its language subtly, isn't it? It was a, a couple of weeks ago, it was wheeling out a lot of Fed, official, Fed officials talking about a pause um, this month. Um, they seem to have backtracked from that. I'm wondering if maybe they spoke too early before they saw this job state. And now they're talking about a skip this month to give the impression that even if we, they don't raise rates this month, rates are going to carry on going up uh, from next month onwards. Yeah, well, I'll start this with the caveat saying that um, I'm very happy I'm not in charge of this forecast for us internally. This is our US team. <laughs> just trying to figure out what's been happening with the Fed has just seemed to me one of the most vexing things. And of course, I have to follow it because it has implications for the global economy. But yeah, I mean, our, our view now is that there is going to be a pause in June. I think a lot of people in the market are expecting that. And a lot of that is coming, I think, primarily from you know, the banking sector turmoil that we've seen over the past couple of months um, and some, some signs that economic growth might be cooling. You mentioned the ISM survey, for example. Um, but that idea of a skip, I think, is really important. Um, there's now a risk that, say, based on the jobs data that we just got or maybe future inflation data, even if we see a pause in interest rate hikes um, you know, in the upcoming June meeting, these hikes might be reintroduced later this year um, mm. if it looks like the economy hasn't cooled to the degree that the Fed wants it to. And, and just like Barry was saying, um, it's an interesting position that we're in right now, right? The Fed is essentially trying to engineer um, you know, a recession, um, which... I didn't say that. End. I didn't say they were engineering <laughs> a recession, a slowdown. A slowdown, a slowdown. Um, which I mean, again, like if you if you think about that, um, that that's quite a predicament to be in, right? Um, and so I think for market, that's going to be that's going to be very interesting to watch and, and mm. very concerning because the idea that you know if we have a skip, 
skip implies that things are going to come back in the future. Yeah. Um, so the story isn't over, um, and it might just kind of resume in, in the fall. Okay. Well, thank you very much, all of you, for your thoughts there. You heard Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent over in Washington, D.C., and our regular Tuesday morning correspondent, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Just a reminder to take a look at the show's website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. There you'll find more information on today's business and finance stories in my daily newsletter, along with details of how to find the show on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And I get to do it all again tomorrow, when my guests will be Wealth Preservation Specialist Enzio Bonfile and Mark Franklin, who is Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management Hong Kong. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. See you tomorrow. Money Talk 